This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 67, and we are recording on February 7th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hey. Oh, hey. <laughs> hey, girl, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Tuesday. Yeah. It's 72 degrees here. Stop. It's like I rainy know. and gross here. The high is 47. <laughs> I can no longer enjoy like unseasonably warm weather because it just constantly reminds me of like the world dissolving to a fiery mass of climate change. Fair. <laughs> I'm just like the Eeyore of Richmond, Virginia. Everyone else is like, it's so nice out. And I'm like, we're all going to die. <laughs> I do confess I was in Raleigh yesterday and it was like 70 degrees and I didn't have to wear my coat and that was kind of lovely. Um, but you're right. You're right. It's terrible. Okay. Well, anyway, what's not terrible <laughs> that, is our show. How about that segue? <laughs> um, this is a reading recommendation show. So that means you send us questions and we answer them. Uh, you can ask us really any book recommendation related questions. So what to get for somebody for their birthday or what your book club should read next or what you should read next to fill your favorite book's hole in your heart, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You can send us questions via email to get get booked at bookriot.com. I just like forgot our email address, even though it's the (laughs) name of the show. It's getbooked at bookriot.com. Or we do a post with show notes on the site for every episode, and you can put your question into the form at the bottom of the show notes. If it's a time-sensitive question, please do put when you need the answer by in either the subject line or the uh, of the email or the first line of your uh, post submission via the form so that we can try to get to it ASAP. Uh, We're doing our best. We also occasionally send email responses um, if your question has been asked before or if it's super time sensitive. uh, I will send you an email. So keep an eye out for getbooked at bookriot.com in your inboxes as well if you've been waiting on an answer for a while. So that is all of our housekeeping. We're going to dive into, we're going to read our first question, and then Amanda's going to do our first sponsor, and then we will do some recommendations. So our first question is from Haley M., who says, I have scoured the internet looking for some Russian nonfiction to get a sense of what it's like to live there, and I would love your recommendations for memoirs or biographies that take place within the last century. I recently read In Order to Live, A North Korean Girl's Journey to Freedom, and I'm hoping for something in a similar vein, but from a Russian's perspective. Between our current political status with Russia, oy vey, and the uh-huh. fact that I just read The Bear and the Nightingale, which is fictional Russia, and so good, by the way, I'm itching to learn more about this huge, mysterious country. All right, but first, our first sponsor. All right, our first sponsor is A Tragic Kind of Wonderful by Eric Lindstrom. This is a YA novel about mental illness and relationships when you're dealing with mental illness. So the main character's name is Mel Hannigan. She's 16, and she has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but she doesn't tell anyone about her diagnosis. So, like, her very immediate family knows, and that is basically it. She had a really bad spell with depression um, before the book opens and didn't tell her friends what was going on and just kind of disappeared from school. So a bunch of like rumors circulated about why she was gone that her friends believed and they decided to stop 
being friends with her. So she's dealing with that, and then she's also dealing with having met a new person who she, like, wants to develop a relationship with, but she also doesn't want to get too close to him because then he'll find out the truth about her and not want to be around her anymore. Um, So the walls around her, like, compartments that she's put all the people in her life in start to really fall away. People start finding out the truth about her, and she's dealing with that fear of being accepted or not while also trying to manage her day-to-day life of mood swings and emotional instability and all the things that come along with having bipolar disorder. So do check that out. Thanks so much for sponsoring the show. That's A Tragic Kind of Wonderful by Eric Lindstrom. All right. Okay. You You want to just keep... Yeah, you keep going. Yeah, I'll just keep going. Okay, so nonfiction about Russia. Okay, we had two posts go up on the site recently that I think you might find helpful. Um, The first one is by Katie McBride. It's required reading for understanding what WTF is happening in Russia. And uh, these are all books about, like, undercover journalists going into current, like, Russia as it is now. Um, And then the other one is by Molly Weta, and it's a Russian history reading list, which is a bunch of Russian history books that start with the revolutions in the early 20th century and then go up to present day. So those are two helpful things. Um, Okay, so books. The first book that I picked for you is Secondhand Time by Svetlana Alexievich, who won the Nobel Prize in uh, 2015, 2014, a couple years ago. Um, And You asked her a memoir or biography, and this is kind of like a series of very small biographies. She is an investigative journalist, Svetlana is, and she went, not undercover, but like across Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, interviewing normal Russians, just everyday people, um, about what their life is like now after the Soviet Union is dissolved and also about what their life was like during, um, you know, the height of the Soviet Union So and through that transition. Um, so she talks to, like, veterans from the various wars, you know, Chechnya and Afghanistan, um, or Chechnya and Afghanistan. She talks to, like, retired manual laborers, uh, factory workers, students, teachers, um, family members who had really high up, uh, who were related to like really high up elite people in the Communist Party, all sorts of people from like a a cross section of society. Um, And is doing this thing where like, you know, you can read a history book about the Soviet Union and get this big, you know, 50,000 foot high level idea of like the big players in the party and all of that kind of stuff. But The thing that I like about this book is that it's really about what a normal human being's life would have been like or was like before and after 1991 and how different that that is and their opinions about like Gorbachev and, you know, all of those uh, and Yeltsin and those people. So um, there is a at the beginning of the book, there is a a nice like summary of recent Soviet history. So if you don't if you're like not familiar with it, um, that'll bring you up to speed. And it is a very heavily footnoted book. Um, So when they reference events or uh, Russian leaders that maybe you're not familiar with, there's probably going to be a little explanation there. So that's Secondhand Time by Svetlana Alexievich. My first pick for you is, it's really an essay collection called Pushkin's Children, Writing on Russia and Russians by Tatiana Tolstaya, uh, translated by Jamie Gamerol. So I picked this up because I'm familiar with Tolstaya sort of by reputation as a fiction writer. She wrote this book called The Slinks that's like, it's been on my TBR for years, and one day I'm going to read it, but that's like sci-fi, that's not realistic. Um, But I found this collection by her, and it is, it's a combination of like, sort of editorial essays. Um, there's some book reviews in there, but they're all focused around, as it says, like Russia and Russians. So, for example, um, one of the reviews, it was a book review of this book that was like about Russian women. And what she, instead of, I mean, she kind of talks about the book, but really what she's doing is talking about how 
it is that Russian women, like, typically are very unresponsive to American feminism and why that would be. So, like, each essay, and this is just an example, each essay is sort of a zoom in on one particular thing about Russian politics or Russian culture. So, like, yes, there's also a piece on Gorbachev that I thought was fascinating and really um, also very funny. She's really, really kind of snarky and, um, and like, also genuinely, like, you know, haha, funny in some places, but she's got like, she's got a real sensibility to her writing um, that I'm really enjoying. So I'm about halfway through this collection, and I definitely recommend it. There are footnotes, but they weren't working in the digital edition I have, so I'm not sure, like, how extensive or helpful they are. I cannot speak to that. Um, and I did have to do, like, a teensy bit of Googling, because I was like, I don't know what that is. Um, but again, the footnotes in my digital edition weren't working, so probably it's all explained somewhere in there. Um, but regardless, like, I feel like what I like about this book, even though it's not a super, you know, beginner-y with the history included type of book, is that she's really really speaking directly to like what it is like to be a Russian, which I think is super interesting and is what you're asking for. So that's Pushkin's Children by Tatiana Tolstaya. Okay, my second pick for you is The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin by Masha Gessen. I am in the middle of this one right now um, because it was in Katie McBride's post and it sounded, you know, relevant. So um, I'm about halfway through it and it's just, oh my God, I knew nothing. Like I knew nothing about Putin um, and everything that I am learning is slightly terrifying. <laughs> um, so he... Because, like, of just of machinations behind his rise. Like, he, he started off in the KGB doing, like, nothing. He was, like, an operative who was overweight and lived in Dresden and didn't, like, participate in anything interesting and no one knew who he was. And through all of these, like, backhanded machinations, um, at, like, via Boris Yeltsin's, um, like, handpicked, whatever, advisors, uh, he, like, just rose to take over an entire country. Um, and the West, you know, I remember when all of this happened, when he first came to power, people were like, oh, he's like, maybe he'll be progressive. And he's like young. He doesn't look anything like Boris Yeltsin. Like, it's going to be totally different. And we were saying all these things, like, as he was seizing control of Russia's media and murdering journalists and sending all of his critics in exile and destroying, you know, the elector system electoral system of Russia. Um, so he's a really frightening person, and I think it's useful to know more about him specifically and the things that he's done in Russia um, for obvious reasons, because he is, I mean, like, running our country now. <laughs> I mean, like, not to overstate, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, has a, a, an uncomfortable amount of influence on the things that are happening in our country now. So knowing how he operates and what he does um, and why that's a bad thing uh, is useful. And the, the journalist who wrote this book, Masha Gessen, um, is from Russia and lived there and then has fled uh, and come to the U.S. because she is gay and has a child. And the Kremlin was talking about taking children away from their gay parents. So she had to flee. Um, and so that's the kind of person who is influencing our president. And that's, you know, it's a person worth uh, reading about. So that's The Man Without a Face by Masha Gessen. All right, my second pick, you asked for nonfiction, and I'm giving you a novel, but you mentioned The Bear and the Nightingale, which makes me feel like you're open to this, um, and so, and also, Amanda, give you two whole reading lists that I think will more than satisfy your nonfiction itch. So, I, and I just love this novel so much, like, any chance I get to talk about it, I have to take. So, it's The Hottest Dishes of the Tatar Cuisine by Alina Bronsky, translated by Tim Moore. This book, oh my gosh, I sold, I hand-sold so many copies of this book at the bookstore. <laughs> Um, because it's one of those really 
sort of quote-unquote unlikable narrator stories that just hooks you. So it's about a woman named Rosa Akhmatova. Akhmatovna? I don't actually know how to say her last name. Anyway, she is a the mother of a 17-year-old daughter, Sophia, who she is just terrible towards. She calls her stupid Sophia. Um, and so her daughter's pregnant, and she, like, tries to, like, you know, force-feed her home remedies to, like, lose the baby because she's not married. But anyway, Sophia has the baby who they name Aminat. And um, and this is all taking place in Russia. Like, Aminat is born at Soviet, Soviet birthing center number 134. Uh, and, um, and so she and the daughter ends up resembling um, her grandmother. And so the grandmother, like, basically takes over mothering the child, which is not good either. Um, and she then decides that, like, by hook or by crook, she's going to get herself and her family out of Soviet Russia um, and makes, like, this sleazy deal with the German, it, she, like, hijinks of, like, the most questionable kind. Uh-huh. Um, it's kind of like... Not to be spoilery, but, like, if you liked Amy from Gone Girl in the way that, like, she's terrible, but she's also kind of amazing, then you're really going to love Rosa from The Hottest Dishes of the Tartar Cuisine. And I do think it has, like, it has, obviously, it takes place mostly in Russia and then partly in Germany, so it has a lot of that, like, daily life mundanities of living in Russia flavor to it. So I think it satisfies, like, the spirit of your question, if not exactly the letter. So that is The Hottest Dishes of the Tartar Cuisine by Alina Bronsky. Okay, next question is from Lacey. She says, A few members of my book club have recently suffered death in their family. One member requested that we avoid books that deal with death and dying. Although I don't think we necessarily are looking for humor, we would like something upbeat. Recent books we've read include The Little Paris Bookshop, Furiously Happy, Fates and Furies, St. Maisie, and In an Unlikely Event. Okay, so my first pick for you is The Lonely Hearts Hotel by Louise O'Neill. And I'm going to say that this is a dark book, but a lot of the books that you named that you guys have liked have been dark, but also hopeful, like Fates and Fury, or funny at least, like Fates and Furies is pretty dark, and uh, Furiously Happy has a lot of dark um, darkness to it. Um, but since it's, the underlying feeling of it is hope, I thought it would be appropriate. And also it's, it's like just kind of a fun read. Anyway, okay, so The Lonely Hearts Hotel, it's historical fiction, it takes place or starts in the winter of the early 1900s, 1910, in Montreal, um, and you're following two orphans who are abandoned and um, live in an orphanage. Uh, they grow up, you know, being raised by nuns, basically. Um, Perrault, who is a little boy, he's a piano prodigy and kind of quiet and a little strange. And then Rose, who is um, like a dancing, comedic performer, lights up the room, everybody loves her kind of a character. Uh, the nuns are super, super abusive, uh, and physically, emotionally, like in all ways. Um, and so there's no reason why these two kids should develop their talents or, or develop any sort of relationship. But through their, you know, dreary situation, they find each other and they connect and they make all these plans about, like, traveling around Montreal as performing clowns and all this kind of thing. But then they get separated. Uh, the Great Depression comes. Perot goes off to work for some rich guy. I don't remember what he does. And Rose gets sent off to be a governess, so they separate. The Great Depression happens and uh, they both descend into, like, really extreme poverty Um dabbling in like the underworld of Montreal in the 1930s which is just like a fascinating thing to read about and then eventually they come back together go to New York and want and decide that they're going to start like a circus of clowns and chorus girls and have a hit show and all of this stuff and so they do that um and so there's a lot of because you know teenagers by themselves living in poverty in the great depression that whole period of the book isn't happy the relationship though is very hopeful and nice um 
a lot of bad things happen to them, but it's about overcoming and love and seeing through and all of that kind of stuff. And the setting is just really interesting. I've never read anything that takes place um, in Montreal, I don't think at any time period, but especially Montreal during uh, the early 1900s. So that's The Lonely Hearts Hotel by Heather O'Neill. Louise O'Neill. Or is it Heather? (laughs) No, you're right. I don't know what I was looking at. Uh, Wait, now I have have to, like, go double check and make sure I said the right thing. Okay. It's Heather. It's Heather. It's Heather. Sorry. Uh, Okay, well, so my first pick for you is a book that came out last year that I really loved. Uh, It's called Behold the Dreamers by Mbolo Mbue. Hopefully I said that correctly. Uh, And this is not exactly a cheerful book, but again, you said Fates and Furies. (laughs) And like St. Maisie has some dark moments too, so I feel like you're going to be okay. Um, It is a book about a... And so it's a pair of immigrants from Cameroon. Um, the man is named Jende, and his wife is Nenny, and they have a six-year-old son. And they are living in Harlem. Um, and he lands; he manages to land a job as a chauffeur for a senior executive at Lehman Brothers. And this takes place in like 2007, so it's right before everything comes crashing down for companies like Lehman Brothers. Um, So, like, this is pre-that. So he's, like, you know, the personal driver for this man and his family. Um, So he gets to know, you know... The man's son and the wife, and then you know his uh, Jendi's wife Nenny gets offered temporary work at their summer home in the Hamptons, and like they finally, so the the immigrant couple are finally starting to like make good, have some money, like they can see their lives improving. Nenny wants to go back to school. Um, their young boy is like having more opportunities, and then the financial crash comes, and everything goes to hell in a handbasket. And so what the book is about is about the interactions between these two couples and their families and how their lives, like, intersect and sort of shift one another's lives in really sort of interesting and unexpected ways. Um, There's a lot of, like, dramatic moments where you're like, oh my gosh, what? Like, how is this going to work out? Um, But on the interpersonal level, like, there are big things going on around them, but their lives are very much more on, like, the things that you have to deal with, like depression and, you know, marital problems and, like, competing ideas of what's best for their kids and all of these things. Um, So there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of interesting characters. Um, I had a lot of feelings about these characters, so I feel like your book club will too, and that always makes for a good discussion. Uh, And it's just a really well-done novel. And I did not really... I did not know what to expect from the ending, but it was not what I expected, which I also think makes for a good book club discussion. So that's Behold the Dreamers... Excuse me. Behold the Dreamers by Mbolo Mbue. All right, my next one is I'm Having So Much Fun Here Without You by Courtney Mom. <laughs> Such a good title. <laughs> it is a good title, and it's so great. Okay, so the main character, um, his name is, I forget, Richard, I think. Um, so he lives in Paris with his wife, who is French, and they have a little girl. He's in his 30s. Uh, he's had a really successful first solo show. He's an artist um, and has got himself like a really hot American mistress, um, and his life is kind of falling apart. Like, his his mistress is leaving him for, like, a cutlery designer or something. Um, Richard finds out that a painting that he originally made when he first got married for his wife, that he um, painted for his wife, is being sold. And it, that, like, those two events make him realize that he's really taking his marriage for granted, and he's lost sight of, like, what is important in his life. So he decides he's going to get over the mistress thing, get back into making art, reinvest in his family life, and just as he makes that decision, his wife finds out that he's been cheating uh, and leaves. And so the rest of the book, that all happens in, like, the first, 
like 20 pages or so. And the rest of the book is him living in like a sad bachelor apartment by himself while his wife like moves on, um, coming up with all of these various misguided plots and plans to win her back and also trying to rediscover his artistic ability. Um, This is normally the kind of book that I would hate, like a self-indulgent, wealthy white guy with a perfect family who throws it all away because he likes to whine a lot is like, shoot me, right? Um, but it's hilarious. <laughs> and somehow Courtney Mom makes him so interesting and sympathetic. Not necessarily sympathetic, but like he realizes what a schmuck he's been, which is a deeply satisfying thing when like a character who you deeply dislike realizes that they've been horrible. Um, and he really does love his wife. And like his attempts to win his wife back get more and more creative and um, like heartfelt. And watching them come back to each other is a really nice story. Um, And so, yeah, it's just, there's a lot to talk about, especially around, like, unlikable characters. Like, if Richard had been a woman, how would, how would your book club have responded differently? I think to the book would be an interesting thing to discuss. Um, But it's really, really funny. Courtney Mom is super witty. It's got a lot of um, great one-liners and things like that. So that's, I'm having, I am having so much fun here without you by Courtney Mom. My second pick for you guys is pretty lighthearted. Uh, it is Modern Lovers by Emma Straub. She, Hello. I know, this, this book was so fun. Like a really delightful reading experience. Um, it's about a group of four people who were friends in college and had a band and then like went on to have normal lives. Um, while, while originally it was a group of five and one of them went on to have like a career and like dry, die tragically. Um, but the rest of them kind of settled into normal adulthood and now have kids who are getting on to college age. Um, and then Hollywood comes knocking because they want life rights so they can do um, a, like a biopic about the one friend who did make it big uh, before dying. So Elizabeth and Andrew, who are married and have a son... And then Zoe and, oh gosh, I can't remember her wife's name. Anyway, Zoe and her wife, they all live like down the street from each other and they um, are pretty intertwined in each other's daily lives. And the coming of this like request from Hollywood sort of is the straw that broke the camel's back that sets into motion all of these things that have been kind of simmering under the surface. Um, it is a very sort of... Like, gossipy isn't the right word, but I'm trying to think of what is. Like, it's got a lot of that kind of, like... Oh, and it then... It's juicy. It's juicy. Thank you. It's juicy. It's a very juicy novel. Um, I also really appreciated having the teenagers in there, because their perspective... It's, like, a close third-person perspective. Like, their perspective on whatever their parents are doing is so entertaining. Um, and, yeah, it's just, like, a really very fun and but also like you know interpersonally complicated look at these four people's lives and how they're gonna like come to terms with some stuff from their past and like some dissatisfaction with their present and what they want for their future so that is modern lovers by emma straub and it's my turn again okay next question is from Brittany, who says he just finished reading sapiens by yuval harari Oh. I think I left out the first line. Actually, this is about her her boyfriend or something. I was wondering. I was like, who is he? But I am, I'm happy for him. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. I think it's either a boyfriend or a husband, and I think he's about to be deployed, and I obviously missed a paragraph. Sorry oh, about that. Okay. That's all right. Well, anyway, so 
this person, this person. just finished reading Sapiens by Yuval Har- Harari and loved it. He was telling me he wanted more after the last chapter or so, which discussed the human singularity and our future. He's been fascinated by the impending intersection of technology and society's ability to effectively process it. His favorite example is to ask what your first thought is when you see someone wearing Google glasses. He said there were so many books that cover such futurist concepts, but it was hard to know which was solid reading and which was some crackpot who spent too much time on Reddit. Such a good ending, and like also so true. So very, very (laughs) true. Yeah. All right, Amanda, you go. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, well done. Um, Okay, so my first pick is um, The Physics of the Future by Michio Kaku, uh, who is a physicist, and hilarious and I, there are like several documentaries that he's in with his like big crazy hair talking about string theory and I just love him so he like kind of maybe walks the line between solid reading and crackpot on Reddit <laughs> he's he an actual theoretical physicist anyway so uh, the subtitle of this book is how science will shape human destiny and our daily lives by the year uh, 2100 so what he's doing is interviewing um, like formative uh, scientists and people in technology who and like computer programmers and stuff who are uh, already working on like inventing the future right now in their jobs. And so he's uh, talking about the work that they're doing now and how that's going to influence what our lives, like daily lives will look like, um, you know, 70 years from now. So the theory is that like in the year 2100, we will be able to control computers with our minds and artificial, artificial intelligence will be pretty much everywhere and instead of google glasses we'll have contact lenses and like cars will be self-driving which you've already seen kind of happen and so he talks about that and he also talks about like um he talks to a couple of scientists who are working in molecular medicine right now and about their predictions of like how by then we'll be able to grow pretty much any organ in the body and cure most genetic diseases and things like that and like reverse the aging process and and all this stuff he talks about he talks to um people working in the design of spaceships what those will look like a hundred years from now and like laser propulsion and all these things so this is definitely not crackpots on reddit these are like really really high level scientists who are like the top of their fields who are actively designing what our lives are going to look like um you know by the time we are all either old or gone um so what everyday life will be like for our grandchildren, I guess, would be more accurate. So that's Physics of the Future, How Science Will Shape Human Destiny in Our Daily Lives by the Year 2100 by Michio Kaku. My first pick for you is Shaping Things by Bruce Sterling, which was first published in 2005, and is it's still really astonishing to me that this book is 12 years old now. Um, <sighs> because I read it for the first time last year, and I found so much useful thought in it. Um, so Bruce Sterling is... Thinking in this book, he's thinking about things, as you might gather from the title, (laughs) Um, but like how sort of the evolution of things has happened. So, like, we used to make things by hand, and then, you know, we had the Industrial Revolution and we had the assembly line, and now we have like gizmos that are you know, really pushing us forward into whatever is next for us, like towards the singularity or whatever, Um, (laughs) except that production methods are not sustainable for these things, as we know. Like, eventually we're going to run out of coltan and nobody can have a cell phone anymore. Unless Mm -hmm. we start 
investing in sustainable methods. So what Sterling is doing in this book is not only thinking about how things work and are integrated into our lives, like he's talking about smart homes and maybe smart wine bottles, and like he's imagining things that either were just about to exist when he was writing it or didn't yet exist that we now kind of have, and ways that they could be then networked and like use the technology to then make them a sustainable part of production. So I think it's really, the message is still very timely. Um, the thought experiments he's doing are really fascinating, and it just will make you think differently about, like, the stuff of technology. I found it just super interesting and fascinating. And a lot of, like, really smart people have read this, so, like, you're kind of reading what other people are reading. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think this book is amazing, and everybody should read it if they're interested in thinking about, like, wanting your fancy, you know, networked house that you can control from your phone and, like, mm -hmm. that knows when you're coming home and turns on the lights for you and also will order you milk if you forgot to get it at the grocery store, but, like, also wants to live in a world that, like, is livable. Um, so that's Shaping Things by Bruce Sterling. All right. This next one is called To Be a Machine. It's by Mark O'Connell. Um, if this is the part of the paragraph that I cut out, if this is the person who's being deployed, it doesn't come out until February 28th, so he might be gone by the time the book comes out. Um, but you can still send it to him. Uh, so I really like this subtitle. It's Adventures Among Cyborgs, Utopians, Hackers, and the Futurists Solving the Modest Problem of Death. <laughs> so you said, I know, you said he's specifically interested in, like, wearables and um, how we, like, interact with things like Google Glasses, and this is very much about that. So um, Mark O'Connell is a journalist who writes for The New Yorker, um, and he goes into what's like the the society of what's called transhumanism which is a term i had never heard before but it's the use of tech to enhance our physical and mental capabilities as human beings so it's all about not just wearables but like implants and stuff like that um and while that sounds like a really fringy weird kind of thing it's actually kind of entering the mainstream a little bit at least in silicon valley it's a big thing in silicon valley google is already um they have a biotech subsidiary that's, like, thinking about how to basically solve aging kind of a thing. Um, so he goes off to, like, labs and all of these weird conferences and, like, meets with people who are, like, billionaires and professors and some, like, computer programmers who are investing in or researching or are somehow involved in all of this uh, upcoming technology that's all about pushing our lifespans, um, basically. So there's a lot of conversations around, like, the moral questions about cryonics and mind uploading, which is, like, a thing that people are actually trying to figure out how to do. Like, upload your mind to the cloud, then when you die, downloading it into a new body. Like, that's a real science fiction thing that people want to make happen. Um, and, you know, various devices that can be implanted into your body to make you more... Um, I'm not, like, super-powered, but whatever. Able to do more stuff, so kind of super-powered, I guess. Anyway, it's a really interesting concept. A lot of the stuff in here frightens me terribly. <laughs> um, but so do Google Glasses, so I'm that person. So that's To Be a Machine by Mark O'Connell. I mean, if you think about it, a pacemaker makes you a cyborg, right? Or, like, hearing aids. Yeah. It's all, like... Or having an artificial limb. Yeah. You know? Like, we're already there. It's just, mm -hmm. like, how far more will we go? Like, there's um, a... There's, I feel like there's a difference between, well, maybe not. See, I don't know. Right. This is why, I, like, between saving your life or making your life livable and just trying to live forever. But right. 
isn't that just a long-term version of making your life livable? I kind of, yeah. it is. Kind of. Yeah. It's like a what? It's like a weird, blurry area. Um, <laughs> I find it super interesting. Okay, so my second pick for you is an essay collection called "Distrust That Particular Favor Flavor," excuse me, by William Gibson, who is a crackpot. Um, but he's one of my favorite crackpots. <laughs> so true. He is a novelist. He's the one who wrote like Neuromancer and Pattern Recognition, and you probably heard of him. Um, he is the amazing writer. He's an ama- you should definitely read his science fiction, uh, but also he is a really engaging thinker. Um, so he, over the course of like, I guess it's 30 years, um, he has been like writing random pieces for publication on culture. Um, so like Wired sent him to Singapore and like New York Times Magazine asked him to talk about what was wrong with the internet. And like, Somebody else asked him to write about Steely Dan. And, like, you know, it's so it's a collection of these essays um, that are sort of have all been in scattered places but have never been collected. And some of them have never actually been in print. Like, some of them he wrote and then they didn't get printed. So it's a bunch of different things that he is thinking about, which touches on almost every single one because he is who he is, touches on the intersections between technology, personal life, and culture. Um, and, and in surprising ways, in ways that you will make you think differently, I think about, you know, Steely Dan, perhaps, <laughs> or, you know, the internet or whatever. Um, and he's just, I just found it a really enjoyable collection. It's also really good if you don't have, like, a lot of long dedicated reading time, and the concepts are broken up into very understandable little chunks, and I also think it gives you a path to, like, you know, oh, here are some more topics that you could then read about uh, from, you know, scientists or whatever. Um, but I, I really enjoyed this collection a lot. I thought it was really entertaining. And if you've never read him, it's a great introduction to his very strange brain. So that is Distrust That Particular Flavor by William Gibson. All right. Question four is from Jan. Um, she says, hello, Book Riot women. I'm going to be real with you. I don't read a lot of classic literature unless it was assigned in school. But I just finished Of Mice and Men and would love to read more like this. I loved how dark and heartbreaking it was. I don't mind feeling emotionally wrecked after a book. I also found Steinbeck's writing to be less dense than I sometimes find classic authors. If it's scary, even better. Are there any other well-known or underground classics like this that I should check out? Also, I'm more likely to check out shorter novels or novellas. I loved War and Peace, but that's a commitment. That is true. Okay. Um, (laughs) It is. So my first one is Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silko. Um, This is more of a modern classic, but so is Steinbeck, so it's fine. Uh, This was published in the 70s. It's about a young Native American named Tayo who served in, uh, as a Marine, I think, in World War II. He was a prisoner of war of the Japanese during World War II, and he has returned. So when the book opens, he's like home back on his uh, Laguna reservation. And he is dealing with a lot of what we would now identify as PTSD. He has a lot of nightmares. He's not able to really function in his life very well. He's drinking a lot. Um, and you are, he hangs out with like other returning soldiers, other, um, people from his reservation who he grew up, who he grew up with, who went off and fought and have come home. And they're all dealing with those same kind of things. Um, they're getting into fights. They're all, uh, becoming alcoholics. Uh, they're really having trouble adjusting to the fact that when they were overseas or when they were in the military, they were treated with respect. But now that they've come home, they're facing racism, despite the fact that they risked their lives, um, for the country. And so he decides, Tayo decides he's going to like try to find a way to deal with this that doesn't involve getting into bar fights or becoming an alcoholic. So he goes back. He goes back to like the traditions of his people. Um, he meets with um, 
I don't remember the character's name. Of course I don't. Like, I character names just fly out of my head when I'm doing this podcast. Anyway, he meets with the, uh, his aunt, I think, who takes him to a traditional healer from his tribe who leads him on this, like, very intense, inward-looking spiritual journey about uh, dealing with what happened to him and the people that he lost when he was in, uh, in Japan or fighting in the Pacific Theater, rather. Um, and so it is a lot about serving a country that has treated you terribly and then how you deal with those emotions once you've uh, come back. And it has, I mean, it's a, a new edition. I picked this one because a new edition just came out from Penguin Classics. So it is a classic, I think, um, and will remain that way forever. And it's super, super heartbreaking and not dense at all. It's not scary, but man, coming up with like a heartbreaking short scary classic is really tough and I, I don't think I could do it. <laughs> Frankenstein? I don't know. But that's pretty dense. Anyway, so it's not dense. It's really great. So that's Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silco. Yeah, this question is tricky, uh, but I well, whatever. I picked <laughs> for my first recommendation for you, I picked Louise Erdrich, who I firmly believe we will be reading for the next hundred years and mm. etc. Um, I think she's amazing. Uh, really, you could read any of her books. Like, they are all really heartbreaking and really intense and like looking at the darker side of humanity um like she will emotionally wreck you it's like basically a guarantee like I don't know why they don't just put that on every book that she writes um but if you're looking for a starting point I would recommend The Plague of Doves because you said you wanted that classic feel and this to me feels the most like it's a it was published in 2008 but I do feel like it's a classic um and will become one uh and it's about there was a murder in the history of this small town in North Dakota, and, like, generations later, I mean, technically it was unsolved, but, like, several Native men were accused of of doing the murder and were hung, um, were lynched, basically, and, um, like, several generations later, like, the repercussions of this are still making their way through the town, um, and so the, the book kind of jumps around in time and person to look at all of these different people who were, like, either directly or peripherally involved in the events of this, um, and it's so well done. It's just so like how she wove all of these pieces together like the modern stuff and the historical stuff and the you know racial issues and the personal issues and it just is a really I think it's a masterpiece like I think it's an absolute masterpiece uh so yeah really anything she writes but the plague of doves is a great starting point if you want to be emotionally destroyed by a book so that's Louise Erdrich have fun all right my second pick is Winesburg Ohio by Sherwood Anderson who was um in my brain, like, the feeling man's Hemingway, if that makes sense. Like, he's writing a lot about uh, early 20th century America, um, and there's there are considerations of, like, masculinity and what it is to be, like, a real man and all of that, but he's just better than Hemingway, like, just better. Um, and influence, was a big influence of Hemingway and Faulkner and all of these guys. So, uh, anyway, so this is a collection of linked short stories, so... Um, Definitely not a War and Peace style commitment. And all of them center around a guy named George, who's a young reporter who is living in, when is it, Winesburg? I guess Winesburg, Winesburg, Ohio. Um, and he becomes this sort of receptacle for all the stories and pain and loneliness and sorrow and everyday life stuff of people who live in this town who don't feel like they can properly communicate what they're feeling um, to their friends or their family or their peers or their neighbors or whatever. Um, so they give it all to George. And so George is the, the like, 
vehicle through which you see into the everyday pain of people living in what is, on the surface, a very um, idyllic, small town in the Midwest in America. Which, uh, And I feel like this was really a response on Anderson's part to a lot of books that were published in the early 20th century that really idealized small town American life. Um, so it's a kind of a classic version, I would say, of like Marilyn Robinson, who was doing kind of the same thing, except there's not, not as many considerations of race or anything like that. Um, but it's just heartbreaking. Like the, if in the same way that of mice and men is, will wreck you because of the small, sad moments in the book. I mean, they, they seem like these huge, big, giant disasters and they are to like the individuals who are living that story but they they aren't it's not like a book about war you know it's not a book about like i don't know war is like the only example i can come up with right now um but winesburg ohio is the same thing we're like these just small episodes in people's lives that will just puddles of tears i just i mean it it, it will destroy you but in like a nice way i guess <laughs> if you like that sort of thing which i do so that's winesburg ohio by sherwood anderson all right my second pick for you is a Nonfiction, mostly classic. Uh, it's in, sort of it's in cold blood by Truman Capote, uh, which is a modern classic, I do believe. Um, like acknowledged by people other than me, uh, <laughs> came out first in 1965, um, and there have since been like aspersions cast upon the accuracy of Capote's reporting, and like I think there was like some speculation that he had like massaged facts and things. Um, so there was a whole. I remember when I was a bookseller, there was a whole big discussion in publishing about like. Do you shelve it in fiction or nonfiction? But anyway, like aside from all of that, it is based on real life things. Um, I in in November in the ni- in 1959 in this tiny town in Canvas, um, the four members of a family were like brutally murdered for no apparent reason. Like there wasn't a clear motive, there wasn't hardly any clues, um, and authorities were just kind of stumped. And eventually, the killers were arrested. But like there was so it was a really complicated sort of manhunt and it was so unclear to everybody why what had happened happened so capote um sort of reconstructs the murder uh which like obviously he's speculating here a bit because i mean he talked to the murderers but like he can't know uh exactly what happened um and then talks about their capture and the trial and then the execution of the killers um and he like really wants to get inside their heads like he's he's really, really, really trying to put you inside of their heads, which is terrifying. Like, you said you wanted scary. Like, this is a really sinister, creepy book. Like, I did not sleep well after reading this. Um, But it's a very, it's very masterfully done. I mean, he is an amazing writer. I think it's definitely worth reading. Um, And there's a lot of interesting discussions to be had. Like, if you just, like, Google in cold blood controversy, like, you can find all of the (laughs) stuff about, like, you know, what what was made up, what was not made up, what people think about it. Um, And also, interesting factoid that I didn't realize until I saw the movie version of this, was that Harper Lee was, like, Truman Capote's assistant when he was mm. writing this book? I didn't know that. I thought that was interesting. Anyway, so that's In Cold, Bu- In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. And, oh, it's my turn to do the sponsor. Yeah, speaking like, of... like, next five things are you. <laughs> uh, speaking of murders uh, <laughs> and, like, killers and violence, our next sponsor is The Cruelty by... Scott Bergstrom. It is the first in a series uh, coming from Fierce Reads, and it is about a 17-year-old named Gwendolyn Bloom, who's who her she's in Europe. Um, 
with her diplomatic father, and he is kidnapped. And so she, and the U.S. government has, like, no help for her. So she basically decides to take matters into her own hands and, like, sets off across, like, the underbelly of crime in Europe trying to find and rescue her father. Uh, And they're describing it as Taken meets the girl with the dragon tattoo and the born identity. And I would throw in, like, the professional in there, even though that girl is obviously much younger, but, like, still, like, if you're going to become a girl assassin, you got to reference the professional. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, this has already been optioned for film, as you might expect, by, of course, Jerry Bruckheimer. Like, hello, Jerry Bruckheimer. (laughs) Congratulations on your new favorite book. Um, But, yeah, if you like thrillers, if you like those sort of underbelly of Europe stories, which I actually really do, like, it's always interesting. We hear so much about crime in America, like, it's occasionally interesting to look at, like, what does, you know, the gangster world in Paris look like? I have no idea. Um, And so Gwen is making her way through all of these things, trying to find her father, or she's going to die trying. And that's the story. And I really actually am fascinated by this. I really, I think I need to read this. I, I love a good girl assassin plot, you know, that's like a personal favorite of mine. So that is The Cruelty by Scott Bergstrom. It's newly out. It's actually today. Happy book birthday. Um, Well, by the time you're recording, you'll hear this. It's been two days ago. But at the time of recording, it was The Cruelty's book birthday. So happy birthday, The Cruelty. Uh, Check it out. Okay. And is it me again? It is me again. Here we go. So the next question is from Catherine, who says, I am a law student and I currently have the opportunity to work with some inmates who are serving life in prison. One in particular would like more books to read because they don't have access to a library. I can send three paperback copies at a time, but I would like some suggestions on easy to read thrillers or adventures, maybe something that a teen boy would like. Uh, I'm looking for some easier reads because some of, many of these individuals did not finish high school, but I want to encourage them to read because it may provide a glimpse into things they may never get to experience otherwise. Amanda. Okay, so I kind of latched on to the thing a teen boy would like for this uh, recommendation. So my first one is Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card, but I do want to put in a caveat here that Orson Scott Card is the actual worst human. And so if you want to go buy this book, maybe buy it used. Because he's, he's, like he's a homophobe and he'll take his money and give it to what he considers charities that fight for that fight like against gay rights. So he's not a great person. And so if you don't want to like give money to him, go buy it at a used bookstore. But the book is great. The series I really enjoy. Um, so the main character is, um, is Ender. His name is Andrew Ender. Um, and he is like a war prodigy. And the book opens when he's six years old. He's taken to um, like battle school and is trained uh, by members of the military to learn how to play these war games. Like he's playing, um, against other kids who have exhibited genetic predispositions to being really good at stuff that the military thinks you need to be good at in order to survive there. And they're doing all of this because humanity has been engaged in this war for over 100 years with an alien race called the Buggers, who were like dead set on destroying, uh, wiping humanity off the map. And so humans are getting a little bit desperate, obviously. They've started uh, putzing around with, like, genetic engineering, trying to breed uh, a super general who will lead human beings uh, to victory, and they think that Ender is the the one. Uh, So you follow him on his various and sundry training exercises. There's a big twist at the end that I'm not going to give away. Um, And then it is the first in a series, so you can continue. I think there are, like, six in the book, uh, or six in the series. 
maybe maybe four i would obviously there's don't at know. least four there's at least four yeah yeah um and they all, each one grapples with these huge concepts but in writing that's not overly complicated um i read this when i think i was 11 so it should be fine for pretty much any level of reader so that's ender's game by orson scott card who is the worst <laughs> cosine <laughs> all of what amanda said <laughs> um, yeah yes but that book yeah i also read that very young and it it was it made an impact on my brain okay uh so my first pick for you is the maze runner by james dashner i really like james dashner a lot i think he writes really entertaining uh gripping books that are like very good for teen boy mentality um and also teen girls like if you like action stories and you are looking for like a really straightforward like well-paced plot these are wonderful um and the maze runner obviously is in a movie now very popular. You can find it just about anywhere, um, and it might be a nice connection to pop culture for people who don't otherwise have one, um, but it's about a boy named Thomas who wakes up like in this weird maze, and the only thing he can remember about himself is his name. And, like, obviously he's a teenager, so, like, he surely must have had a family and people and friends and a history, but he doesn't remember anything. Um, and he's surrounded by other boys whose memories are also gone. Uh, and so he becomes sort of inducted into this maze that they now live in. They're in, like, this central area, and everything around them changes all the time, and there's, like, monsters, and there's traps, and it's, like, they don't know why they're there. It's a very confusing thing, um, but of course they set out to get through the maze because they want to escape because this is not a life. Um, and also, a girl shows up uh, bearing a message from the outside world. So that sort of, you know, changes the way the game that they are playing uh, unfolds. So it's a, and it's the first in a series, so there's more. So if they like it, there's, there's more where that came from. Um, I think there's four boy us not knowing how many books in a series is the theme of today there's at least three <laughs> perhaps there are more um but yeah and i i definitely recommend james dashner in general as an author he has a couple other series that i liked as well um but that's the maze runner so start there all right, my second one is When I Was the Greatest by Jason Reynolds, and I'm just realizing now, I don't know what the rules are about sending books to prisons, but the book has a gun on the cover, so that might be a thing to consider if that's something that they won't allow in. I don't, I don't know. Um, so it's a, this is YA. It's about a, a young boy named Ollie who I think is 15. He lives in Bed-Stuy, which is a neighborhood in Brooklyn uh, in New York where Biggie Smalls is from, if you want to place that in your brain um and he it's it's like kind of gritty but also all the characters are so great like they're really just they'll crawl into your heart and like just live there so um ali is a good kid you know he he goes to school and he um after school he takes like boxing lessons he helps out at home uh his father is is gone but his, his mom and his sister um are still there and so he helps you know, help run the household with them. His best friend is a neighbor. His name is Noodles. <laughs> I love the nicknames in this book. Um, his name is Noodles. But Noodles is, like, kind of always getting into trouble. And some of it is trouble that could, like, end in prison or end with someone getting really hurt. And Ollie is just kind of always around to help get him out. Um, and so far, it's been fine. The thing is that Noodles has a, a brother named who's nicknamed Needles. He's given that nickname because he has Tourette's. And um, he has tics. He, he, like, blurts out sometimes obscene things, but everyone in the neighborhood, like, knows what his deal is, and so they support him, and they're all really good to him, um, but the way that he's learned to soothe himself is by knitting, so his nickname is Needles, um, which is why there is a knitted gun on the cover of this book. 
And then something happens, which I'm not going to, whatever, spoilers. Um, something happens between Needles and Noodles on, on the street, and um, they have to, like, solve this problem. And there, this is, like, happens outside of the neighborhood where people don't understand um, who Needles is or, like, why he says the things that he does or why he acts the way that he acts. Um, so something, you know, bad happens, and then they all have to come together and pick up the pieces and try to solve it. So that's When I Was the Greatest by Jason Reynolds. I did not realize, but I had forgotten that that was part of the When I Was the Greatest. We have like a mini Tourette's theme here because I picked yeah, um, yeah. Jerk California by Jonathan Friesen for my second book, um, which is a very like real world story about a boy named Sam Carter who is in high school and he has Tourette's. Um, and it's like a lot more physical for him, but he also does have the verbal outbursts. And um, his home life is not great. He's got a stepfather, Bill, who's just a jerk. Um, and uh, and um, he, uh, like, you know, drinks too much and says awful things about Sam's birth father and is just kind of a general schmuck. Um, but Sam's about <laughs> to graduate. He's finally going to, like, get out of high school, but he doesn't really have any prospects. He doesn't. He's not planning on going to college. He has nothing to look forward to. And then he takes a summer job with this guy, George, who used to be best friends with his father. Um, and then he ends up getting sent on, like, a scavenger hunt, uh, sort of, to find out more about his father, who died when he was little, obviously. Um, and uh, and then, like, learns in the process some things about himself. There's a girl. Uh, it's a really well-done book. I found it... Just fascinating because I had not really realized before I read this that Tourette's was so physical, um, and it really does give you sort of an insight because you're you know you're 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 seeing everything from Sam's perspective um, into what it must be like to like have this going on all the time. Uh, and also, I thought it was just like a really heartwarming story. I thought um, the road trip is a is like a trope I like, and so that was fun to like see him go on this sort of scavenger hunt road trip. And uh, I thought it was all really well handled. It is an own voices book. Um, the author has some experience with Tourette's personally. So I just thought it was a really fascinating read. And I, I think it, you know, it's a, it's, I guess it's not a fun book per se, but like it's very engaging. Um, and it's an interesting story about a person who might not be like you or might be like you. And then you can feel good about having finally seen yourself on the page. So that is Jerk California by Jonathan Friesen. All right, question six is, like, the hardest question I think we've ever gotten. This is so <laughs> difficult for me to find yeah. support. All right, this is from Jessica, and she says, I recently finished reading Lab Girl by Hope Jaron, and I loved reading about her friendship with her colleague Bill. As a woman who has several long-term platonic and cherished friendships with men, I was struck by how few platonic male-female relationships there seem to be in books. It seems to me that these types of friendships in books tend to eventually blossom into romance. I would love to read more books that prominently feature platonic but deep male-female relationships. Suge uh, suggestions from any genre are welcome, but I tend to gravitate toward literary fiction and nonfiction of all kinds. So tough. Yeah. So tough. Okay. Um, so my first selection for you is the Jacoby series by William Ritter. Um, the first one is just called Jacoby. Uh, these are YA fantasy historical fiction books, which are awesome. Um, so I, they take place in England in, like, the Victorian era. Um, and the main female character's name is Abigail. Um, she arrives... Uh, no, not in England. New England. She arrives in uh, this, like, new town and is looking for, like, a job. And she stumbles upon a guy named R.F. Jacoby, who's an investigator looking to hire an assistant. Um, and he turns out, has the ability to see supernatural beings. And so uh, she does not, 
but she is good at dealing with small everyday details, which he is not. So that makes her really good for the position of, you know, being his assistant. Um, so in the first book, Jacoby, they catch a case uh, where a serial killer's on the loose. The cops, of course, think it's just like a normal serial killer, but Jacoby thinks it is not a human being. And um, so they work together to solve this crime. So it is a, it's billed as Doctor Who meets Sherlock, and that is very accurate. And so the two of them have a friendship and a working relationship that works uh, really well in a, you know, Sherlocky Holmes Watson kind of way. So that's Jacoby by William Ritter. Speaking of Sherlock, I just Hello. want to shout out Elementary, the TV show right now, because this is one of the reasons that it is my favorite Sherlock adaptation, is that it features a modern day Sherlock Holmes and Joan Watson, uh, played by Lucy Liu, who is amazing. Um, and there is not, I mean, I think they're in their fourth or fifth season now, and they're has never even been a hint of will they, won't they. But instead, there are, like, these deeply moving, amazing scenes where the two of them, like, talk about their evolving friendship and, like, partnership while also, like, catching murderers and bad guys. <laughs> it's amazing. It's just amazing. I love this show so much. Okay. Um, so if you're looking for, like, a visual, you know, representation in the media of a platonic male-female friendship, which is also super hard to find, like, go watch you some elementary. Um... And also, I do have a mystery for my first pick, but I, I actually consider Asma Zahanek Khan's work literary mystery, if that's a thing, so I think it will fit your tastes. Um, it's her Asa Hatak and Rachel Getty series, the first of which is called The Unquiet Dead, um, and it, it's a it's about these two partners. Um, Rachel is a detective, and her boss is Asa Hatak, and um, he and she are part of like a special task force which handles minority-sensitive cases. Um, in Canada. Uh, I'm trying to remember where do they live in Canada. I can't remember. My bad. Um, but anyway, they get assigned. So in the first book, they get assigned this case uh, that then, like, has connections to the Srebrenica massacre of 1995. And, like, there's all this, like, small town stuff that relates to international politics, and they have to figure out, like, what is going on. Um, and and I the second book is The Language of Secrets, which I loved, um, and has to do with uh, uncovering, they're trying to uncover a terrorist plot. Um, and it's just, they're so good together. I really love the way they interact. Um, they're very different people, and, like, one is a boss and one is the assistant, so, like, or detectives, so there's definitely, like, a power differential, but it's handled really beautifully, and, like, you can see their friendship and also their working relationship on the page, and I really liked it a lot. So that is, the first book is The Unquiet Dead in the Rachel Getty and Asa Hatek series by Asma Zahanek Khan. All right, my second one is nonfiction. It's Words in the Air, uh, which is the complete correspondence between Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell, and it's edited by Thomas Travisano and Saskia Hamilton. So Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell were both American poets uh, in the, like, mid... 20th century, like 70s, 80s kind of a thing. Um, and they were just besties. Uh, and they have a long and very intense um, collection of correspondence. And when this says complete correspondence, it's like complete, like grocery list <laughs> instructions for like how to get accepted to various writers camps, like just whoa. <laughs> so keep that in mind. You're probably going to do a little bit of skimming. Um, so, oh, Lowell died in the 70s. That's the thing I'm just realizing now. Anyway, um, but their friendship was really, like, passionate and deep, and they were both involved in separate 
um, romantic relationships. I think Lowell, uh, Robert Lowell was divorced twice, I think. And, like, Elizabeth Bishop had two uh, romantic relationships where, like, the man committed suicide. So they both had their own stuff going on. Um, and they very rarely met in, in person, which might be why they never had a romantic relationship, but still managed to keep up this um, very, like, heartfelt and meaningful uh, friendship. So if you want to read some nonfiction about uh, a real-life platonic, deep, and cherished friendship between two, I guess, like, semi-famous American poets, then this is a good pick. I, it is, like, a thousand pages long, so, you know, do with that what you will. So that's <laughs> Words in Air, the complete correspondence of uh, Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell. All right. Oh, sorry. I mean, I mean, you know, you've sold me grocery lists and it's a thousand pages long. Like, what? <laughs> It's really good though, like the way they talk to each other, the way poets talk to each other in 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 letters, I've always found to be like hilarious and just odd. And you know, they talk about Emerson while also talking about like how their babies poop different. You know, just like the most bizarre juxtaposition of stuff. Poetry. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, my second pick for you is "How to Say Goodbye Goodbye in Robot" by Natalie Standiford, uh, which. Boy, did this book hit me in the feelings place. Um, it is a YA novel, and I thought it was so interesting how, like, it's hard enough to depict, like, adult male and female friendships, but, like, depicting teenage male and female friendships that aren't, like, one of them is secretly in love with the other the whole time, like, it's, like, impossible to find, unless one of them is gay. And then that's, like, you know, kind of, I don't know, does it count? I don't know. So anyway. I like that defeats the purpose right. of having, yeah, like, there's no, po- if there's no possibility for romantic interest, then that right. isn't in the spirit of the question. That's what I thought, too. So anyway, so this book I really loved. Um, it is about a girl named Beatrice who has moved to a new town, which is, like, par for the course for her because her father is a professor and keeps, like, jumping universities. So she's lived all over the place. She's really used to being the odd one out. Um, And she's used to relying on her mom for company. Like, they have a very... They have had a very friendly and fun relationship, but something is up with her mom. She's kind of withdrawing. She's not fun anymore. She's, like, telling Beatrice, like, that she's unfeeling and not sympathetic to her, and they're just having, like, a mom-daughter moment that is not a good one. Um, And so in this newer town, Beatrice is, like, really at, like, has no idea. She's new. She doesn't know anybody, and now her mom, who has been her support system, is, like, not on not to be relied upon anymore um and so you know she goes to assembly the first day and she's hoping to meet like somebody to be her new best friend and instead like you know some girl presumably and instead she gets seated next to a kid named jonah who is nicknamed ghost boy by his fellow classmates who is a really lonely loner kid who hasn't made a new friend since third grade um and they you know through both being outsiders but also because Bia really is, like, a great narrator and a really interesting character. She, like, is intrigued by this boy, um, and she wants to get to know him better, so she really, like, makes an effort, and, uh, which was also nice to see on the page, like, not instant best friends, but, like, how sometimes you have to make an effort to befriend somebody. Like, what? Real life? What? Uh, Mm -hmm. and so, and then their friendship kind of spins out from there, and it becomes, like, a really deep, amazing friendship that is not at all romantic, despite what, you know, the girls she interacts with are constantly asking and what other boys think um and there's this radio show that they like to listen to too it's like a late night call-in like crackpot radio show um and they have adventures around that and then the ending is actually i don't don't know like can't spoil it there's it this is like i said it, it hit me in the feelings place so there's some like 
intense feelings around this book, but I can't say more than that because it's spoilery. Um, but I thought this was a really beautiful portrayal of teenage friends who are male and female and not interested in romance. Um, also just a really moving, emotionally satisfying book. So that is How to Say Goodbye in Robot by Natalie Standiford. And we did it! A little bit over, but uh, we'll just, you know, chalk it up to me losing sound for half a second. Um, So thank you so much for listening to the show. Please do rate us on iTunes and leave us a review. We love to see your feedback, and it helps other people find the show. You can find us on social media. Um, I'm Jen IRL on Twitter, Jen with two N's, IRL, and Amanda is I'm Amanda Nelson. And thank you so much to our sponsors. We will talk to you next time. Bye.